Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Are you a new parent? Congratulations. Now, do you have any idea how you'll afford to pay for your child's college education? Coming up, we'll talk with the financial planner about the tools families can use to plan for the high cost of college. Student loan debt is a perennial issue lawmakers try to tackle. Nationwide, student loan debt totals $1.3 trillion. What are the latest plans from the Trump administration to ease the burden? In 2015, more than 42 million borrowers had student loan debt of $100,000 or more. The Washington Post's Daniel Douglas Gabriel will break it down for us, including a plan to allow borrowers to file for bankruptcy to cancel student loan debt. Is that really a good idea? We'll find out more in just a bit. But first, did this headline in the Hartford Current catch your attention this week? Trinity College to charge more than $71,000 next year. That's the cost of one year of tuition, room and board, plus fees. According to the current, next year's cost to attend Trinity, quote, will make it likely the most expensive college in Connecticut and the first school in the state to pass the $70,000 mark. Now, what's your reaction to this story? As a parent, how do you afford paying for your child or children's college education? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the studio first uh, Dr. Angel Perez, Perez, rather, Vice President for Enrollment and Student Success at Trinity College. Welcome to the show, Angel. Thanks for having me. Also in studio with us is Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. I mentioned she well, writes for the Washington Post for higher education. Danielle, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with you, Angel. A lot of people were surprised to see that headline. Tell us about why tuition is increasing about 4% next year. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll start by saying that I absolutely agree with some of the shock that we've been receiving higher education is increasingly more and more expensive. But let me explain why it continues to go up. Um, I'll use Trinity College, obviously, as an example here in Connecticut. We run a city 24 hours a day. We house our students, we feed our students, and we provide them with this high-touch, personalized education. On any given year, 9 to 10 to 1 is the student-to-faculty ratio. Um, So really, really high-touch. But at the same time as we're trying to do that, the cost of running education continues to get more expensive. So for example, every year the cost of running a physical plant goes up. Every year healthcare goes up. We have a very highly educated workforce and they need to be compensated. We're trying to manage all of this at the same time as state and federal appropriations are going down. And so I'll give you a a brief example, Lucy. Um, At Trinity this year, we dispersed $52 million in financial aid to make the education more affordable for our students. 3% of that comes from the federal government, and 0.3% comes from the state of Connecticut. So the pressures are really, really high, and we're trying to do everything we can to control costs. But higher education as a sector is really challenged right now. So when we see that number, uh, nearly $72,000 next year for tuition, room and board, plus fees, What's the actual price that most of your students are paying out of pocket? 
Right. Most of our students are not paying that. 60% of our students are actually on financial aid. And students, for example, that make their families make $80,000 or less are actually going to Trinity pretty much for free because we are one of the few schools in the United States that guarantees to meet full financial need. But I would say the average student pays about $30,000 to attend. Uh, when we look at uh, the demographics of the student body at Trinity College, um, again, when you see that uh, number, you think, well, this is a school for wealthy kids. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that you have a lot of kids that are on scholarship. So what are you? what is Trinity doing to attract more low-income, middle-income families to have their kids apply and be accepted? Right. So... The first thing I'll say is over the last several years, we've actually had the highest number of low-income first-generation students in the history of Trinity College. So we're really excited about that. But a part of what we've been trying to do is really open the doors a little bit wider and change our own processes and also communicate our story a little bit better because people see that sticker shock price and they immediately say, well, I can't apply, right? What most low-income students don't know is that if you come to Trinity and you're low income, you're probably gonna pay less than you would if you went to UConn for four years. A um, Couple years ago, what we did is we, we removed the application fee for any students who were low income and first generation to college. Um, we've been doing much more outreach to low income students all over the United States. Um, and this year we actually implemented a program where any low-income student is not just going to get a financial aid award for one year. We're going to show them what it's going to cost for four years so that they understand and can plan. So we're trying to take away all the administrative minutia that actually prohibits low-income students from considering schools like Trinity. Uh, we should note that uh, Trinity College is not, even though you're the first in the state to announce your, your tuition rates for next year, there's a lot of comparable schools in the Northeast that are charging close to 70, even above 70 grand. Uh, Danielle, can you give us some perspective on the colleges and how much, uh, how much tuition is, is increasing in the Northeast? Sure. So NYU, Swarthmore, uh, George Washington University in D.C., there are a, quite a few schools who have price tags over 70000 But as Angel mentioned, very few of them actually charge that full price because there's something called a discount rate. This is the percentage of which um, schools take off of the sticker price based on how much financial aid you qualify for. So many school students who are low income or middle income actually tend to pay 40% less than that sticker price. The trouble is that uh, sticker price tends to scare off a lot of families. So psychologically, some schools are realizing that they have to be a bit more transparent about their pricing and explain how the sausage is made. We've also seen a lot of tuition resets. Now, this is where private schools in particular start to reset their number. So to bring the sticker price closer down to what the actual discount price would be. So so families would say, well, oh, instead of having to pay 50000 well, it's actually closer to twenty five. Well, I could try to see if we can manage that. It doesn't necessarily save the students a lot of money, but it's a more honest approach to where the pricing will actually come in for the majority of the population. So, Angel, again, Angel Perez, Vice President for Enrollment and Student Success at Trinity College, this reset, uh, is this something that Trinity does? Yeah, actually, so one of the things that we've really been trying to do, and it goes back to the point I was making earlier, that we really need to do a better job of communicating how the sausage is made and helping students understand what the average price is. And, you know, all colleges and universities in America, we certainly don't make this process any easier for students. The reality is every single student pays a different price based on income levels, scholarship, and at other colleges as well, uh, merit aid might potentially bring down the price. Um, So we're all thinking about that reset strategically.
Uh, you were mentioning that um, Trinity College, like many uh, colleges uh, that have a lot of students who live on campus, you're, you're really running a small city. But what is the tipping point? So when we look at in 2018, you have univers- colleges pay, you know, charging you know, more than 70 grand. What's it going to be like in 10, 15 years? When is this going to, at some point, reach a level that is no longer sustainable? In my humble opinion, we have arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, we are talking about this not only at Trinity, but I serve on several national boards that talk about these issues as well. And we're realizing that this is no longer sustainable, not only because you have fewer and fewer students who can actually pay that sticker price, but also that you have a declining high school age population, particularly in the Northeast and in the Midwest. And so that formula together really causes an implosion. So what we're talking about in higher education is how do we um, rethink our financial model because that actually does not work. How do we diversify our revenue sources and decrease the dependency on tuition? And also, how do we engage the philanthropic sector to invest in us more? And we really have to do something about the federal and state government investment as well. Uh, Daniel Douglas Gabriel, again, covers uh, higher education for the Washington Post. 10, 15 years from now, could we see a lot of these colleges closing? Because as Angel mentioned, the trend is there are fewer students that are enrolling. So it depends on the size of the college. Now, if you read a lot of the Moody's uh, Investor Services reports, small private universities, these are the schools that have less than 3,000 students oftentimes, are seeing an immense amount of pressure on enrollment because, as Angel mentioned, there is a declining population of high school-age students in the Northeast and the Midwest, so they just don't have the population to draw from. Uh, as a result of lower enrollment, that's few, that's less revenue. And with less revenue, there is going to be difficult to keep their doors open. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we're going to see uh, 10% of those schools go away in 10 or 15 years. But I think Sweetbriar in Virginia is a good example. This is a school that has a great historical um, significance to that community, but just wasn't really able to keep its doors open. They tried to close. The alumni tried to save them but they're still struggling. The economics just doesn't necessarily make sense. And I don't know if a lot of schools are going to be able to get out of that. This is where we live. Again, we're talking about uh, the cost of a college education. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Coming up, we're going to hear from some uh, federal and state lawmakers about uh, what's being done to help students, help families, so they're not uh, being saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, um, which they may never get to be able to pay off. Again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Matt is calling from Hartford. Matt, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, I uh, thanks for taking my call. This is a very, very interesting conversation. I guess I would I, I have two comments. Uh, one is related to you know you hear a lot about um, you know low income students and that's that's important. And then you have of course the you know at the other end of the spectrum you have the forty percent of students who are not receiving financial aid who are presumably paying full price. And I'm I'm just curious about you know. Uh, middle to, to upper income parents, you know, say, you know, families making, you know, in, in the low six figures, um, you know, are, are those students just frozen out? Because it's, you know, families uh, for whom $70,000 is is a lot of money um, and and um, maybe they're not getting, getting the financial aid. Um, and the other piece of my question is something that I don't think has been, been addressed yet is, um, the salary data. Now, the U.S. Department of Education recently uh, put out a data set, and it shows 
Um, there's a lot of interesting data there, but one of the interesting pieces is um, salary data of students six years uh, after graduation, that is 10 years after entering. Um, and if you look at that data for um, the liberal arts colleges, it's, uh, it's disheartening. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the liberal arts, and I'm a graduate of a, of a liberal arts college similar to Trinity. And, um, you know, those numbers just don't seem to be keeping pace with, uh, you know, the similar, um, you know, earnings uh, figures for, for other colleges, you know, particularly those with pre-professional programs. And, um, you know, in an era where colleges are, are charging over $70,000, I would just like to hear, uh, particularly the liberal arts community, uh, respond to that issue. Good questions, Matt. Thank you for your call. Uh, Angel, let's start with that first one, the, the question of families who make uh, maybe, uh, like you said, the low six figures, but still $70,000 is a lot of money when you've got mortgages, you've got other things to pay for, and they're, fr- they're getting frozen out of financial aid. How are they going to be able to afford this moving forward? Yes, and thank you for your question, Matt. I absolutely agree with you. Um, the middle class is really the the population that I'm worried about the most right now, um, particularly in private higher education. If you are a low-income family, that, that cost is going to be covered. If you're a high-income family, you're not necessarily worried about paying. But the middle-income population, we are seeing a decline at colleges like ours. And a part of it is because the federal financial aid formula is not kind to middle-income families. Um, And so part of what we are trying to do at the national level is really advocate for a change in the formula because, remember, we have to abide by federal financial aid guidelines. Um, So what institutions have been doing and what we have been doing at a place like Trinity is really trying to use our own funding, not federal funding, but the Trinity College financial aid funding to try to incentivize more middle-income families to attend. And then, Danielle, did you want to take uh, the second question, uh, just asking about earnings when people graduate from liberal arts uh, colleges? You know, how are they able to, to make ends meet when they've got these big bills? I mean, I think it's important to note that data that the caller mentioned um, does also come in a time during the recession, right? So we saw um, pretty much an economic downturn that affected everyone, regardless of if you attended a liberal arts school or um, a more professionally geared school. It it was a time of which everyone's salaries, for the most part, went down. So I think that kind of changes, shifts the data a bit. So we're going to see a lower um, earnings amount maybe six years out. But I will say, and I think this is encouraging for the most part, most um, mid-career students who study uh, liberal arts or go into the humanities start to see their salaries start to match some of the other like business professional fields and such. Will they ever make what engineers do? Probably not. But they can still make, eke out a pretty good solid middle class income you know, mid-career. Now, what impact does this have on public universities? So we know that uh, tuition at these private schools is going up, but tuition is also going up at, say, the state schools, Mm -hmm. while in Connecticut, sometimes the funding, because of our budget deficits, is going down for these state schools. How are they able to, to, to balance that? I mean, I think you saw what happened to UConn. (laughs) <laughs> over the, the idea of um, less state funding meant that the school would have to try to find money elsewhere. The trouble is for many of these schools, because they have been going through this since the beginning of the recession, there's no more, there's no fat to cut. 
There's there's no more faculty to try to lay off. There's no more de- departments that you can shrink. So they're really struggling here. But I think it's really important to note that in terms of tuition pricing, we've actually seen annual growth rates start to moderate. And this started to occur about three years ago. So they're kind of growth rate for tuition across the country has returned to pre-recessionary levels. And that's important because as we're thinking about the trajectory of how high tuition can go, if it's starting to moderate, there is some hope for families. It might not feel like that when you see a $70,000 sticker price, but it isn't quite where it used to be. A part of that is also states in response to very angry families started to impose tuition freezes in certain in certain uh, states, and that started to have an effect. And then also schools started to do the same because they saw that the difficulties of trying to sell themselves to a population that was seeing wage stagnation could not afford that, that, sticker, that sticker price, so they wanted to see something that was closer to to what was actually feasible for them. So we're, you know, it's it's I wouldn't say it's a bubble that's bursting or anything, but there are trends and headwinds that's having an effect and a pressure on enrollment on tuition as we know it. Uh, I wanted to go back to Angela Perez, Vice President for Enrollment and Student Success at Trinity College. A listener uh, tweeted at us, a 2017 study in New York Times saw Trinity fifth in the nation with more students coming from the top 1% of income than the bottom 60%. Trinity student body sees a quarter of its students coming from the top 1%. Again, we had mentioned earlier about what the school is doing to attract uh, students from all different economic backgrounds. But could you talk a little bit about what this this tweet uh, infers about Uh, Trinity College. Yeah, absolutely. And that certainly is a part of our history. Um, But I think part of what we're doing at the institution is acknowledging that we have historically attracted um, a pretty wealthy population, but that as demographics are shifting and because we are a private institution with a public good mission, that we also need to open our doors a lot wider to low-income first generation. And as the previous caller mentioned, paying very close attention to middle-income families as well. Um, So that's why, you know, the past several years, that data is from 2015. If you were to look at the data today, it will look very different because we have the highest number of first-gen low-income students on our campus in the history of the institution. So we're, we're certainly working at that. You know, I mentioned earlier about you know what college will look like in, in 15, 20 years. Is the whole concept of of how we view the college years changing? This idea that you know your child uh, becomes an adult, um, can go live away from parents, uh, live on campus, become independent, but because the cost is rising. And, you know, schools have to pay for that, that room and board and all the services that are provided. Is it going to be more of a shift where you see more students living at home and just going to school to get their, their classes and that degree, but not living on campus anymore? I think you might have a shift. I, I certainly think the residential college is not going to be going away. Um, but as mentioned earlier, there might be fewer of those institutions, um, depending on your, on your brand in the marketplace. Um, but I also think that colleges and universities are going to probably start offering hybrid options, right? Um, so we might see more and more institutions devel- delivering classroom instruction, and then a certain part of that happens online where it's a lot less expensive to run. So we are going to have to, as a higher education sector, think about a lot of different kinds of models to help bring down the price. I want to take one more call before we head to break. Jason's calling from Avon. Jason, go ahead. We have under a minute. Uh, yeah, I mean, my comments are this. Firstly, I think uh, colleges in the U.S. have to rethink why general subjects are offered to students. Uh, if they've already been through K through 12, they should have covered on those adequately. Uh, you know, I'm an engineer, and uh, I come from Australia, as you might have guessed from the accent. 
Um, you know, I didn't go and do general subjects when I started my university uh, life. I went straight into engineering. I think uh, U.S. colleges need to rethink uh, how they deliver that and why they need to deliver general subjects. That's all I've got to say. Jason, uh, thank you uh, for your comment. Again, it talks a little bit about the quality of our K-12 through system, Danielle. It does. I mean, in order to achieve what the caller is asking for, we would need a greater partnership between K-12 through and uh, post-secondary education because a lot of schools find that they are making up for the education that some of their students did not receive through in their K-12 through uh, uh, classes. And so they spend a lot of time trying to level the playing field to ensure that all these students are at the same place in order to get into their major classes, right? And so unless that changes, it's going to be really difficult for colleges in, to to try to shrink the model and get to those core classes faster and save students money. Angel, do you want to quickly uh, uh, comment on the caller's point? And also, I know that uh, Trinity does have collaboration with uh, Hartford schools. Yeah, we do. And, and we partner with the schools. We actually are, are very much a partner with um, HMTCA right across the street. But what I wanted to mention is that, you know, while I agree on some level that, you know, some of the general education can be taken care of at the K through 12 level, it's very dangerous to say we should not offer that at the higher education level. The world is changing and it's changing very quickly. A third of the jobs that this generation that's currently in college, uh, a third of the jobs that they will experience do not exist yet, right? And so offering a broad-based general education that's going to help students to think critically, to get quantitative skills, work together, so on and so forth, is going to help them help prepare them for jobs that are going to keep changing. And I worry about a, a deep focus on one particular subject area because jobs are changing so quickly. We'll have to leave it there. Angel Perez, Vice President for Enrollment at Student and Student Success at Trinity College. Thank you so much for, for coming in. Thank and you. I also uh, want to thank Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. She's going to actually stick around with us. Uh, we want to hear more about this new report from the Brookings Institute on student loan debt and what it looks like across uh, the nation. Also, we're going to hear from Second District Congressman Joe Courtney and State Representative Matt Lesser. You can join the conversation, too. Uh, how are you handling paying off your student loan debt? Um, if you're a parent, uh, does this keep you up at night? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about higher education, student loan debt, and you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Again, in studio with me, Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers higher education for the Washington Post. Uh, before we take some more calls and hear from some lawmakers, I wanted to talk about this new report from the Brookings Institute uh, titled, The Looming Student Loan Default Crisis is Worse Than We Thought. What are some of the big takeaways, Danielle? I think some of the, the most interesting aspects of this. Now, this report is based on uh, a a cut of data from the Department of Education that looks at the long-term effects of borrowers trying to repay their loans. And two things that stood out the most to me is the concentration of debt as well as defaults among African-American students. Now, this is African-American graduates as well as those who drop out. Historically, African-Americans uh, often have not had the resources to pay out of pocket for school, so they have had to borrow. Um, what's dis kind of disturbing is that we're starting to see uh, a high number of delinquencies and defaults. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the data looks across a period of which the recession was occurring. So lots of people, again, saw a decline in their wages, becomes a little harder to pay off those students loans. 
And we know that from a lot of other research that student debt in terms of repaying that money is not a top priority for many people. They're thinking about paying their rent, their mortgage, taking care of food, childcare, all those other things. And as a result, student loans sometimes come in at fifth or sixth on that priority list. And sometimes that results in people defaulting. The other thing I thought was really interesting about this report is looking at the high percentage of students who went to for-profit institutions who end up with a lot of debt. I think it's an, it's an interesting thing that a lot of people had not really been thinking about is the cost of some of these degrees and certificates at these schools that oftentimes are triple or double what you would pay at a community college for the same degree or associate's degree or certificate. And I think, as we mentioned in the last segment, price transparency is really important for families to make an educated decision about where to go. Rather, if whether you are 18 or 20 or 25 or older, and that's kind of something that I'm, I'm happy to see this report and others starting to discuss how to make educated decisions about where to go and how much debt you might take on in order to get there. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the default rate among for-profit borrowers. There's been a lot of attention um, in recent years about for-profit colleges. Uh, when you hear that uh, there are uh, students who have either dropped out or they've gotten these certificates, but they're not able to pay their, their loans, is it because they're not getting connected to the job after they get that, that certificate or that degree? I mean, sometimes it's a matter of what the market values. If you're not seeing employers value the certificate or degree of the school of which you went, then it's going to be difficult to, to find gainful employment, if you will, uh, in order to pay off those those loans. Um, you know, another thing is that some of these degree programs or actually the certificate programs in, uh, in career training will not pay as much as that education costs. And I mean, you can see the same thing in liberal arts schools. You can see the same thing in publics and nonprofit privates. But it just seems there's there's a concentration of that kind of pain in the for-profit sector right now. This is where we live. Again, we're talking about higher education. Now, the White House released their budget earlier this month. The priorities for higher ed include eliminating public service loan forgiveness. This impacts teachers and other um, Police were um, officers as well, also ending subsidized student loans, overhauling the federal work-study program. Also, lawmakers from the House and Senate are in the process of revamping the country's higher education system. It's the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, which was last updated in 2008. This law would overhaul the entire federal student loan system. To get some perspective on this, uh, Second District Congressman Joe Courtney joins us now. Uh, Congressman Courtney, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Lucy, and it's, uh, thank you for doing this topic this morning. We appreciate your time, uh, Congressman, and, and give us an update on, on what's happening with this uh, rewriting of the Higher Education Act. What happened in December that uh, concerned you? So I sit on the uh, House Education Committee. I'm actually on the Higher Ed Subcommittee, and actually was around last time in 2008 when the Higher Ed uh, bill was uh, reauthorized. The Higher Ed Act is kind of like the farm bill of higher education. It's a five-year, um, it's supposed to be a five-year um, authorizing um, bill that at law that basically sets the ground rules for all the various programs that you've been discussing this morning, whether it's Pell Grants, Stafford Loans, Public Service Loan Forgiveness, uh, the for-profit institutions, etc. Um, if you do the math or look at the calendar, we're, we're late in terms of um, doing a reauthorization, despite the fact that this is, in my opinion, you know, one of the absolute most urgent issues, uh, particularly for middle-class families, as was discussed earlier. If you look at uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016, I mean, I frankly think one of the reasons why his campaign resonated um, so strongly was because 
um, you know, he really um, hit hard um, this question of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, huge debt and uh, rising costs for, for families. Uh, unfortunately, the higher ed bill, which you mentioned, you know, was reported out of committee last December. It's called the Prosper Act. You know, one of those anodyne sounding uh, bills that, in fact, um, in my opinion, goes in exactly the opposite direction in terms of trying to, you know, come up with real strategies for this country to, to solve this problem. Um, you know, really undercuts uh, a lot of the efforts to um, reduce debt. Uh, you know, the Pell Grant program is still the workhorse in terms of trying to shrink the amount of debt that um, uh, particularly kids from low income and working families um, have to carry to, to get through a, a two year or four year degree program. Again, they eliminate the subsidized staff for uh, the that well, they uh, cap the Pell Grant program. And they also eliminate what's called the subsidized Stafford student loan program, which affects about 7 million kids uh, in college. Again, that subsidized program basically says that you will not be charged interest while in school. Uh, that's about six grand uh, in terms of um, additional debt costs uh, that, and, you know, historically uh, has been uh, avoided. Uh, again, this would add that $6,000 on top of uh, the debt levels that are already at 1.4 trillion in the U.S. economy, as the Federal Reserve Board uh, reported. Um, it also um, eliminates the um, Federal Supplemental Education Opportunity Grant, the FISAG uh, program, which I know sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, but that's a grant program that helps um, students with uh, additional costs. That you know, Danielle mentioned is you know one of the the big reasons for default uh, that's out there. I mean, this is can be up to $4,000 uh, for uh, eligible kids. Uh, UConn is a big user of, the, of that program, as well as some of the other Connecticut um, universities. Um, and again, there, there's really nothing um, in the PROSPER Act that really, um, you know, does anything in terms of uh, trying to, um, you know, increase transparency so, so families can make better choices about, uh, you know, what is a life decision now. It's almost like buying a house. It is like buying a house in terms of going to, to college. Um, and as I said, it, it sort of knocks down some of the pillars of, of at least trying to keep, um, you know, our higher education system from just kind of degenerating into the haves uh, versus the have-nots. Um, this is certainly you know, a gloomy, gloomy picture. I just wanted to bring Danielle back into the conversation, Congressman Courtney. How likely are these proposals going to make it through? Well, there is some hope within the Senate that uh, there might be a more bipartisan effort. I think one of the things that was dismaying to a lot of folks within higher education watching the House uh, version was that it was not a bipartisan effort. The Republican side put forth a bill and rushed it through, and that's what we have now. But the Senate has to also present its bill, and from the head of the committee on the uh, the Senate Education Committee, Lamar Alexander, and uh, Ranking Member Patty Murray have said they're going to try to get a bipartisan effort and produce a bipartisan bill sometime this spring. We've seen them host a series of hearings over the last couple of weeks trying to get to that effort. They are asking the public to provide some suggestions as to how they should reauthorize this bill. So that's I think that's promising. So it is entirely possible we will see many of the aspects of Prosper make it into what the Senate plan was. And I'm sure there's going to be negotiations as to what should be in the final bill. Uh, but, you know, there is a huge shift away from reducing the federal role in higher education when it comes to what the federal government is willing to provide. One of the things uh, the congressman didn't mention and I think is also very important to note is the cap 
on lending. So graduate students and parents and parents right. who want to take out for their kids will also face a cap. Now, you know, it is arguable. Ar- you can argue the fact that uh, perhaps we shouldn't let graduates and parents borrow the full cost of attendance. That could create some problems. But the other side of that is when you place those caps on the federal side, that usually pushes people to the private market. And the private market isn't quite as generous at times as the federal government can be. So, you know, there there is some de- detriment. The, it could work to the detriment of, of families. Congressman and, Courtney, and did also, you want to respond? Just to, just to jump in, I mean, as the Trump budget uh, that you mentioned, Lucy, and, and the PROSPER Act, I mean, they actually eliminate the public service loan forgiveness program, which was goes back really to Eisenhower and, and was really... Um, in my opinion, a very smart, targeted way of making sure that critical occupations and skills um, don't get drowned out with, with high uh, debt and borrowing costs. We, we did a press conference in Hartford uh, after the PROSPER Act passed with a young woman who is finishing up um, medical school. Uh, again, Air Force veteran, used her GI Bill, uh, you know, went to uh, UConn and, and is, you know, just totally committed to primary um, medicine, primary care medicine, which has the lowest reimbursement rates. Um, And the public service loan forgiveness program is the strategy that someone in her position can employ so that she can actually uh, pursue, you know, that uh, area of medicine, which um, we're going to have a, 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 you know, crisis in terms of physician uh, participation in family medicine and pediatrics uh, if we don't pay attention. And, you know, basically cutting off that avenue for uh, individuals like her is, is, you know, again, going in exactly the opposite direction in terms of, uh, you know, not just um, helping students, but also making sure that as a as a country, you know, we're going to have uh, people able to, to fill critical skills and occupations without, um, you know, spending, uh, you know, an adult and lifetime and hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, which is exactly where she is today. We mentioned this uh, figure again, this $1.4 trillion debt that I think 44 million people in this country carry. You know, there's the suggestions of the most recent report by the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College suggests the federal government could actually cancel $1.4 trillion in the student loan debt that impacts 44 million Americans. That would actually boost the GDP by an average of $86 billion to $108 billion over the next uh, 10 years. And just a modest impact on the deficit and inflation uh, during that same time period. Is this something that could ever happen, Congressman Courtney? Would you support that? Well, you know, it's ironic that if you look at the tax bill that just passed, uh, it had a uh a deficit impact of $1.5 trillion. Uh, and I, I think, you know, clearly there's a lot of um, good analysis that shows that it is not going to have the, the benefit to the economy that, um, you know, initiatives like, um, you know, looking at the overhang of $1.4 trillion of student loan debt is out there. Uh, you know, there is a um, student loan forgiveness legislation, which I uh, am the sponsor of in the House, which has about 170 co-sponsors. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is the has the companion bill in the Senate, which would at least allow people to refinance down uh, legacy debt that um, even in the Stafford program can still be six, seven percent, uh, you know, just from you know where uh, notes were four or five years ago before we passed the Student Loan Certainty Act, which which uh, at least moderated the interest rates for for recent students uh, using the Stafford loan program. That would basically um, result in a revenue loss to the federal government of roughly 
about 50 to 60 billion dollars um but it would you know all that money would go into debt holders pockets and and certainly would be a boost in terms of the economy to to allow that to happen uh, again i offered it as an amendment when we did markup of the prosper act on the education committee again was defeated on a party line vote uh you know speaker ryan uh, has had the opportunity to bring our bill to the floor not just in the 115th congress which we're in today but the last congress and again it's totally blocked consideration of it Again, there is no reason why people should not, in a low interest rate environment, be able to, to bring down their interest rates, whether it's you know pub, uh, public loans like Stafford, which, again, we, we have legacy debt that still is at much higher interest rates than you know what you get today for a home or a, a credit card, uh, or the, the private market, which Danielle mentioned, which is much higher in terms of the interest rates that are out there right now. So um, clearly, you know, the legacy debt, we're not helpless in terms of trying to deal with that. And um, but frankly, you know, we have leadership in the Congress, which is just just has turned a deaf ear to any consideration of uh, bills that I think the average person understands just makes perfect common sense that at least you ought to be able to refinance the debt down to lower interest rates. I want to thank Second District Congressman Joe Courtney. Unfortunately, we've got to leave it there, but I have okay. a feeling we're going to talk about this again. We thank you for your calling I'll in today. I'll be back. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah. uh, this is where we live. Again, we're talking about uh, higher education and the proposals coming out of Washington uh, that impact uh, borrowers around the country and future college students. In studio with me, Daniel Douglas Gabriel. We wanted to find out how the C- Connecticut General Assembly has worked to address the cost of college, including ways to ease student loan debt. Joining us now is State Representative of Matt Lester, chair of the Legislative Banking Committee. Uh, Representative Lester, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. This is a great topic. Thank you. And we want to hear just a, a quick synopsis of what the General Assembly has done to help Connecticut students and what's uh, coming up this session. Well, great. Well, first of all, I want to say I'm really concerned about what this means for Connecticut's economy. You know, we desperately need students to go to college uh, if we want to compete. Uh, But rising student debt levels are having an effect on our economy, too. They're depressing the housing market. They're making it harder to start businesses. They're even delaying the age that people are starting families. And it's the only kind of debt that doesn't go away in bankruptcy. So when we looked at it, we found that the $1.4 trillion industry isn't just about colleges and universities. It's also a big part of the financial sector. It's almost completely unregulated. Uh, So in 2015, uh, Connecticut became the first state in the country to pass a student loan bill of rights. And it works to improve financial education. But it also regulates the student loan industry. It requires companies to comply with the same kinds of consumer protections, Uh, that already apply to every other financial product out there. And it requires those companies to identify student borrowers at risk of default and direct them to ways to save money and avoid default, you know, find loan forgiveness. Um, Unfortunately, that program is now uh, under attack because Mm -hmm. the same bill that Congressman Courtney just mentioned, the PROSPER Act, would block states like Connecticut from helping uh, borrowers trying to repay their debts. The, The other issue we're looking at right now is uh, the causes of debt in the first place. You know, states right next to us, Rhode Island and New York, uh, have taken uh, steps to make college free for many uh, people looking at college. Uh, and that, I think, is an important thing we're looking at. So this month, uh, Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate in Connecticut announced a plan to make, the fir- uh, make two years of college uh, free. Uh, that's uh, uh, obviously a heavy lift. Uh, but in the long term, we need to, to talk about the sources of debt, too. 
We want to thank you, uh, Representative Matt Lesser. Unfortunately, we're running up on the clock, but it's good to know uh, what the legislature is doing this session to address this perennial problem. Thanks again, uh, Representative Matt Lesser, who also is chair of the Legislative Banking Committee. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up next, we're going to leave you with some tips and takeaways with a college financial planner, and we'll take your calls, too. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we've been talking about paying for college, managing student loan debt. What are some tools families and students can use to avoid being saddled with a huge loan balance that will take years to pay off? Fred Amrine joins us now on the phone. He's a certified financial planner, also author of Financial Aid and Beyond, Secrets to College Affordability. Fred, welcome to Where We Live. Hey, Lucy, thank you for having me. I'm so very let, excited to be here. Let's start with uh, the, the tools we're talking about. What advice can you give parents who are planning uh, for their, their future college students and how they're going to pay for all this? Well, it's, it's a pretty expensive uh, decision. I have three daughters. We just put three, so I, I kind of live the experience or dream if maybe it would, people would consider this a nightmare. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, projecting the outcome, and that's one of the shortfalls in the process is there's no – good place to find that. We're developing a tool. We have some of the tools already done on EFC+, Plus, but the schools only give you information one year at a time, and, and many of our children are facing uh, advanced degrees, so the new world for us as parents is to envision our child's life at age 25, which uh, makes it even more daunting and more expensive. You mentioned EFCplus.com. Uh, that is your website that provides tools to help families compare college costs. So let's talk about that. What, are the, what should they be looking for? You mentioned that up, up through age 25, uh, what are some uh, common sense uh, things to think about when you're uh, trying to figure out what you can afford, what's the best vehicles to use, so to speak, uh, to, to be able to have that money on hand? Yeah, I think um, a big a big piece of this is engaging the child in the process. Um, what's different, as I said, the schools only give you information one year at a time, and I think a lot of parents um, are hoping for for the you know, money they need. Uh, we take a little different approach. We ask ask what you have saved and what you can afford per year, and then put it all in one place. You know, projecting what the cost is based on the school's historical gifting policy, and then what actually you receive. So. One is, is understanding what you'll pay at each of those schools based on the award package you get, and that will change each year. But also then how is the missing piece for us? Um, our course was just re- reviewed by the CFP board, and um, we really got great reviews. We were excited about that. And the, the how is what's missing. You know, how we structure the debt drives our loan repayment options and who's legally responsible for that. So that's not really transparent in the process, and that's what we're bringing to market. Danielle, did you want to respond to to what um, Fred is saying about transparency? I think that's a very smart way to go about thinking about uh, which college to to select. I'd also encourage parents to ask um, admissions officers about front-loading. It's a practice where schools only offer scholarships and grants your freshman year, and they go away sophomore, junior year. Just it's important to make sure that whatever package that you're seeing um, from the outset will continue on as prices um, climb. I've also heard in some instances that it's useful to think about tuition increasing at least 3% every year. It might not necessarily happen, but it kind of gives you a, a sense of how to plan financially. I want to take a call. Bill's calling from Stanford. Bill, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi. Um, my um, uh, children, have um, the two of the three have graduated from college, one still in college, and mom and dad have uh, covered the cost of an undergraduate education uh, primarily by borrowing off of the uh, 
the value of our home through home equity loans. But now we're putting the um, responsibility for paying for any future college or graduate school on the children. And and we find that um, uh, somewhat uh, disappointing that although they're applying for financial aid uh, as uh, young uh, people in the uh, community with with limited uh, income, there is very little financial aid. Um, And I think a previous caller was addressing the issue of medical school and the substantial amount of debt that uh, one would accrue. We're we're seeing that also with our children, substantial amount of debt, not for undergraduate education, because mom and dad have absorbed that, but with with graduate school. And I'm just wondering if there's any suggestions on how to address that. I think that there was also conversation about loan forgiveness uh, that no longer is being offered by the federal government. The the other uh, inconsistency, it seems, is so a corporation gets to deduct the cost of investment in education. Um, why not the individual? If the individual is investing conceivably hundreds of thousand dollars in graduate education, why can't that be, for instance, deemed an investment and depreciated on their, uh, on their taxes? Good question, um, uh, Bill. I want to have uh, Fred Amrine address those for you. Yeah, there's a few things there. Um, so the proposed, at least what's in the Prosper Act right now, the, the public uh, loan forgiveness or public service loan forgiveness actually will go out to, eight, to 2034. So it can include or qualify up through 2024 is currently what's being proposed. Um, so, so there is, again, as I said earlier, understanding how you structure your debt and then where the, the uh, student is going to be employed um, really dictates um, what their financial future is, and I think that's the transparency part that's missing. We don't see the financial consequence of that when we make these decisions, and, and again, that's what we're trying to bring to market is this transparency. Um, as far as the deductions, um, under the new tax code, that was um, still in place. They can deduct up to $2,500. Now, the part of the problem is, and this is another problem, is the lack of financial literacy. This is probably one of the most complex things outside of maybe your retirement planning that the parents and uh, and children go through. Um, when you really look at this process, you have to understand the financial aid process. You have to understand um, the tax strategies, and there are numerous ones. You have to understand how you structure your debt. You have to understand the loan repayment options that you have, and, and then also um, the college savings plans, how, how to use your money the best way. And, and again, we totally underestimate the complexity here. And, and that's what we're trying to do is, is bring this both to the advisors and to the families. Uh, Fred, we just have a couple more minutes. We didn't get a chance to talk about this proposal coming out of the Trump administration that would actually um, allow people who are filing for bankruptcy to take into account their student loan debt. That's what, That would be a change. What's your take on that? Um, so I, I think that's a, it's a Pandora's box, personally. Um, what happens there... You know, education, the, and it is also one of the problems, is we have easy access to funds, which, you know, kind of hides the, 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 the financial decisions. Um, if we should open up, and let me give you a comparison to, compare it to buying a house, um, think of what we need to go through in the approval process to give us the, the money to buy that house. If we move that same process and add bankruptcy into this process, accessibility will be affected greatly, I think, in my eyes. Um, because in a, in a house situation, the bank has some asset that they can reclaim. If they do the same lending for an education, um, they really have no hard asset. So, so that that will be, you know, if that should happen, I think accessibility will become a problem for many families. Personally, we're almost out of time, uh, Fred. Where can our listeners go to learn more about uh, how you're helping families navigate this? Yeah, I would uh, tell everyone we write a really great newsletter. It's called EFCPlus.com. 
And on that website, we have um, two tools. One is for parents that are trying to plan for college. It puts all the information in one place. It saves them a boatload of time and money and, and frustration and stress. And then also an in-college tool. And I think there's 20 million students that are making ongoing decisions every year which will affect their financial future. Um, and that in-college tool can really help a lot of families and parents navigate this process and see the outcome. And it puts all the loan repayment options in one place. Fred Amron, again, is certified financial planner, author of Financial Aid and Beyond, Secrets to College Affordability. Fred, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks well, for having me. Have I a want, great day. Thank you. I want to go back to Danielle Douglas-Gabriel again. She's been in studio with us for the hour, covers higher ed for the Washington Post. So what are some big takeaways in terms of, of what is likely to go away again when we look at what Congress is debating? So it's a little difficult to say right now. I would caution that public service loan forgiveness is being proposed to go away. It has not happened yet. I get a lot of emails and calls from a lot of very worried medical students. Um, I, we we haven't seen enough political will in Congress to really get rid of this program. Lots of people benefit from it. And I think it would be very difficult to see it go away in full. And that's another reason why you didn't see the same proposal, which was made in the last White House budget, didn't go anywhere. So it, let's let's hold off on being too concerned, but certainly for folks who would benefit from that, they should pay attention. The other thing in the bankruptcy thing, the Trump administration has exactly say what it wants to do on bankruptcy. All it has asked for is public comment in the next three months on how they should define what's called undue hardship. Right now, it is notoriously really difficult to discharge your loans in bankruptcy unless you can prove undue hardship. And what that means is that judges get to decide whether or not your situation fits that criteria. And it's not a criteria that's defined. So this might actually finally give a definition. It could broaden it. It could narrow it. We really don't know. But the the kind of hiccup here is that we have income-driven repayment plans. Now, these plans allow you to pay as little as a dollar for uh, your, your loan. So I don't know if we're going to see bankruptcy really come back into this space the way some would like to see it. We'll have to leave it there. Again, Daniel Douglas-Gabriel, always a pleasure to speak with you covering higher education for The Washington Post. Uh, Today's show produced by executive producer Katie Talarski. Also, thanks to tech producer Kion Wolf and Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.